This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Fort McMurray. Uh, we remember what was happening a year ago today. Today is the anniversary of the Fort McMurray forest fire breakout. Evacuees on this day left Fort McMurray and their homes. Uh, and the community re- remains in recovery and uh, doing a pretty good job of getting back on its feet one year later. To talk more about all of this, Anchor for 630, Chad in Edmonton, our sister station, Kirby Bourne is with us. Hello, Kirby. How are you today? I'm well. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. So what's the feeling in Alberta today? How are people reflecting back on a year ago there? Well, we're up here in Fort McMurray today, and in a park downtown right by the river, they're having a commemoration event. So it kicked off this morning at about 5 a.m. with a pancake breakfast. They're going to have different events all day. There was yoga earlier. They're going to have Zumba later today, a barbecue lunch and a barbecue dinner. And people just kind of seem like they want to come in, take a moment, connect with their neighbors, reflect. It seems that people aren't really wanting to make a big deal out of it, but definitely want to take that time to, to mark it, for sure. Uh, as you said, uh, it seems like an odd anniversary to uh, commemorate. I don't know exactly what the, what the appropriate word is here. Uh, what is the purpose? What is the objective of bringing these people together on this anniversary? The vibe we're getting is it really is just a kind of market. Um, it doesn't seem that the municipality or the province wants to make a huge deal out of it. There's no big rally. There's no, we're so strong. It's just, we've been fighting for so long. Let's kind of come together, have this day, acknowledge it, but then let's move on. As we've tried to talk to people as they kind of been coming and going, people don't even necessarily really want to talk to the media right now. They're just here to to recognize what happened and then continue on with their day. It's for the most part a fairly normal day in Fort McMurray, uh, except that the people are coming down here just, just to recognize it. How important is this milestone for the town? How, how, how important is it to, to acknowledge this and where they are one year later? It's incredibly important, especially since it's pretty amazing what they've done in a year. We were up here last week getting some stuff together for the anniversary, and it was my first time in Fort McMurray. I, didn't, I wasn't up here covering the fire. I was back handling things in Edmonton. But um, you, you drive in, and still about 15 minutes out of the city, the trees are just all burned black. Like, it's a very sobering reminder. And then as you carry into the city, there's immediately signs of recovery. One of the crucial images was the Super 8 Motel. Mm-hmm. Right as you drove into town, it's right there. So it was kind of the, the homecoming moment for many people. So to see that burned down really resonated with a lot of residents. So that's being rebuilt. As you pull into Beacon Hill, which is one of the most badly affected uh, neighborhoods in the city. As you pull in there, there are still a lot of empty lots, but there's a lot that already have houses built and people living in them. There's construction along the way. There's there's a lot that's already been done here. And then as you kind of look to, because there's a highway that goes through Fort McMurray, it's kind of the left and the right of the highway. The left got hit, the right stayed okay for the most part. So as you look to the right, things are normal there. The fire didn't touch downtown. It didn't touch the north side. 85% of the city was completely untouched. So it's, it's impressive to see how much they've truly done in a year and how much work has gone into getting the city back to normal. Talk a little bit about the mental health of the people that are there. We have heard stories that this is becoming an issue. And obviously, as you mentioned, evidence of the fire is going to be visible for years to come still. How are people coping with that? We spoke to a doctor last week, uh, just a, a general practitioner, and he did tell us that uh, for the first six months after the fire, he had some people reaching out for mental help. But when he really saw an uptick in it was the six months to now. So it was kind of everyone came back and it was 
almost mechanical. All right, get in, get my house ready, figure out what I need. Where's my gas? Where's my electricity? How do I do that? Once that kind of normalcy set in, a lot of people then had to start dealing with what they had gone through. So this doctor told us that he has seen a huge uptick in uh people looking for mental health work, probably three or four times as many as he did before. And other doctors that he's spoken to in the city have had that same request. We haven't been able to speak with um, a mental health professional, unfortunately, but the, the requests for those type of supports have skyrocketed. Are, are the, the residents getting the help they need? Is the province and such helping them out to make sure that, uh, that, that they do deal with these lingering problems? There are those professional uh, professionals they can reach out to, definitely. And a number of groups have sprung up in Fort McMurray for people just even to kind of go and hang out and chat. It may not necessarily be run by a mental health professional, but it just allows them to come and sit and talk, maybe have a beer, just connect with people who who know what they've gone through. Uh, we spoke with uh, a pastor at a church, and they have been hosting events like that. Sometimes the fire doesn't come up. People just come and they talk and they just hang out. Sometimes it's all they talk about. So the the kind of other groups have popped up as well, which has really been helping residents. Is there a positive buzz in the city for the most part, though, or is it still kind of dreary? Today's kind of, I don't know if dreary is the right word. Today's, it's very somber today. It's, um, there's people, like, they're having the different events down here in the park that are kind of trying to keep people upbeat, but you can definitely feel a different um energy off people as you just even pass them on the sidewalk say hello good morning Fort, Fort McMurray is a very friendly city we've been here for a couple of days people have been wonderful but the the energy is definitely different today uh what does Fort McMurray take away from this what does the city learn from this you know both from uh, an economic point of view and even from a safety standpoint a, st- a safety standpoint what, what can they take from this moving forward They have already started working on a bigger fire break. I think the city felt like they were pretty protected with the Athabasca River, but this fire just jumped right over it like it was a tiny little puddle. So they've started working on that. Um, They're looking at different neighborhoods. There's one in particular, Waterways, which was heavily affected during the fire. It's also on a floodplain, so now they're kind of not sure if they're going to rebuild that one. Um, But for the most part, this city has rebounded fairly well. Uh, Obviously, oil prices are still affecting them up here, and that's nothing to do with the wildfire. But when it comes to the wildfire, they've, they've bounced back. Very impressively. So uh, talk about the economy and business, and this will be on my last question. I know you got to run. What is the economy like up there? What has business like? Are businesses coming back? Businesses are coming back. As you drive around downtown, it looks like nothing happened, both physically and just even in uh, the energy downtown and the activity. There's, There's lots of open businesses downtown. We haven't noticed a big increase in Anything that's closed as a result of the wildfire, there's a few gas stations here and there in the um, more affected areas that we noticed were closed. But for the most part, it looks like the economy is doing as well as it can, especially given the gas prices going on right now. All right, Kirby Bourne has been with us, anchor at 630 Chet in Edmonton, uh, another chorus affiliate. Kirby, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Uh, you know, it, it must be amazing, and and you know, when you're involved in a tragedy or 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 an event like this, um, you immediately go into survival instinct. But it was interesting listening to Kirby say that uh, it was six months after the fact, six months to the present, six months ago to the present, where we're starting to hear of uh, issues of mental health and people who are. Uh, 
who are having a tough time coping, perhaps because, you know, the pace has slowed down a bit, life's slowly getting back to normal. And then again, having all of the evidence around the city of what has happened uh, there, it, it must be pretty tough to move on. Uh, here's a clip from a firefighter uh, talking about Fort McMurray one year later. I think it's going to affect a lot of people, whether they want to or not. It's your body knows what happened a year ago. Um, I'm trying not to really dwell on it and stuff like that, but I, I think I think it's going to hit people in different ways. You know, like it would be a very positive uh, experience, and there would be a very positive vibe as as you know people realize they've survived this this tragedy and that uh, and that they are rebuilding their town and the pride involved in that and in the people coming together. We certainly saw not only Albertans but people from right the way across the country come together and offer help and support for. Uh, for Fort McMurray. So there must be just a tremendous amount of pride uh, it, within the city itself that they have that they have uh, turned around and, 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 you know, the worst is behind them and they are starting to move forward and rebuild. But again, there must be that period of time when, you know, the help is gone. Uh, you know, the people that have come in to help, the agencies are, are slowly disappearing and the town is slowly regaining its population and coming back to normal. Um, but then it's sort of like a, almost like an emotional whiplash, like a, psycho- a psychological whiplash, where all of a sudden you may see uh, evidence of, of something that had burnt or evidence of the fire. And, and you think about it with the forest uh, around Fort McMurray, I mean, it's going to be uh, even a couple of decades from now, you'll probably still see evidence of where the uh, the forest fire is. So as much as, as people try to move on and uh, continue on with their life, uh, it, it must be tough when there's evidence of what has happened uh, all around you. And uh, from what I understand, about 80% of the town has come back, uh, but that still leaves uh, quite a gap and 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 hole to fill as this town tries to uh, to regroup and uh, and regain itself. Uh, fascinating to watch, and of course, uh, never underestimate uh, the strength of Canadians and the ability for them to uh, get things back to normal. Uh, thanks to Kirby Bourne, anchor at 6:30, Chad in Edmonton for that. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. As you uh, have no doubt ha- uh, have no doubt heard, uh, yesterday at around four o'clock, uh, Angelo Musitano was gunned down in his uh, driveway uh, while in his uh, pickup truck uh, in Waterdown. Uh, certainly uh, a busy part of the day in the sense that uh, kids uh, coming home from school, that sort of thing. Uh, of course, uh, Angela Musitano, a member of uh, Hamilton's notorious Musitano crime family, uh, spent 10 years uh, in prison uh, along uh, with his brother for uh, the death of Pops Papalia back in 1997. Let's bring in Peter Edward. Uh, Peter is with the Toronto Star and is authored uh, and is expert on uh, authored many books and is uh, a, an expert on organized crime and is with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Oh, fine, then yourself? Very good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this, Peter. So, are you surprised here? No, totally no. Um, there's been a lot of violence around this guy, and um, um, you're, you're always surprised when someone gets shot, but um, I'm not totally surprised, no. Uh, I had heard, and there's reports that he had tried to turn his life around after uh, serving his time in jail uh, and getting out in 2007. Uh, is that accurate? 
It's hard to do that, though. I talked to a guy last night who knew him, and he said he said that sort of thing that he thought that he um, didn't have the edge he used to have. Um, on the other hand, um, people have long memories. There are um, there are a lot of grudges out there. Uh, are these people ever safe? Not like really, you no. like you said, do they ever get out? Uh, you can think you're out, but that's when you're vulnerable. I mean, Eddie Mello, the boxer, got shot when he thought he was getting out. He uh, relaxed, started going to therapy, put on weight, uh, met a nice woman, had a kid, and that made him vulnerable. So he, you know, then he got shot. Sometimes, um, sometimes there's a reason to be paranoid. Uh, Susan Claremont uh, from the uh, Hamilton Spectator was on with Bill Kelly earlier on and talked about him uh, being well liked. Here's a clip of that. I spoke to one friend of his last night who uh, was very emotional, very, very sad about the news and said, um, and this was, you know, really helps to put things in perspective. He said, Ange leaves behind a wife and three small boys. And the friend said that, you know, those boys may not even ever remember their father. They're so young. Uh, how do you think the, the rest of the underworld is going to look at this, Peter? Um, it's sad that a lot of people don't look at it as humans. They don't look at it as crying kids. They look at it as an opening in the market, a opportunity, a chance to move ahead. And so um, uh, this is a very, very unsympathetic world. Uh, tell us a little bit of the backstory and what his involvement was in this family. Uh, he really, you know, became noticed uh, with the um, back in '97 when John Papalia and Carmen Barilero were shot to death, and he was there with Ken Murdoch. Um, you know, when uh, Barilero was shot to death in Niagara Falls, that would be when a lot of people noticed him first. His father. Uh, did prison time in the murder of Dominique Rocco, who is the, um, he, he didn't actually pull the trigger, but for being connected to the murder, and Rocco was connected to a an extremely um, powerful, real, well-respected old mafia guy from Toronto, and so that was a really high-profile uh, film. Uh, you talked about uh, uh, how when one falls, it creates openings for other uh, others, and and the whole thing just moves on. Is that what is being discussed at this point? Do you think? Yeah, one thing I've heard is that in Niagara Falls, a couple really major gamblers have been um, been pinched, and so what that does is create an opening there, creates competition there, and even if he wasn't trying to push in, people might think he was, and so. Um, uh, one, uh, there's a whole bunch of theories, you know, the Montreal theory is a big one, but another theory is that um, it, this could be an opening in Niagara Falls uh, through gambling. So it, talk about the timing of this. Uh, as you said, uh, you know, this community certainly never forgets things like this. Uh, it seems it can take a, a long time for revenge. What determines that? Is it opportunity or is it, uh, as you mentioned, when it's time to, for the business to create an opening? Uh, it could be both. You know, it could be you've always wanted to do it and now he's got a couple enemies. Um, you know, say if you have five players, you wait until a couple other ones line up as enemies, and then you've got your opening. It could be um, it'd be a whole bunch of, of things. You, if um, Sometimes these things go where there's a bunch in a row, and there's been a couple of murders in Toronto because it confuses police. You know, they're trying to connect all the dots, and it's hard to do. So it's, um, sometimes when there are a couple of murders, it creates a, a certain paranoia, and so other people jump in and start doing the same thing themselves. It doesn't take very long to plan a hit and carries out. So um, these are things when people have guns that they can do quite quickly. 
are do you think there's other dominoes to fall here? I talked to someone from that world this morning, and um, we were talking about um, you know in the next three weeks it depends if a couple of people fall, then we've got something big. If they don't, then we probably then it could be an isolated thing. If if there's nothing um, more, then I'd say I'd lean towards the Niagara Falls theory. Um, if there is another one, then I'd lean towards the Montreal theory that he backed the wrong side in the Rizzuto War. And so um, I think if um, that's what I'll be watching, you know, is other other people fall in the next, you know, by June. Uh, how does law enforcement approach this? Uh, it depends on the officer. I mean, there's this full, you know, police. There's a full range of um, of characters. There's some intense curiosity. There's some some, frankly don't really care uh, so there's a huge range um, a, a really good police officer won't think organized crime or not organized crime they'll just look at the evidence and follow the trail of evidence mm-hmm. the, the really good ones um, get tunnel vision almost like a hunting dog and they're just looking for clues and looking for for evidence that'll work in court they don't care about my theories they, they just want to know what will convince a jury does this draw attention to the underworld here and uh, is that what they're looking for here um, definitely. I mean, I, this is a very, very interesting time for the underworld here. I think we've got a half dozen gangland killings, Toronto, Hamilton, and since um, January 30th, and I've um, definitely got my attention. The um, very interesting little patterns here. The um, I mean, we had two on one day about five weeks ago. There's, there's, there are things going on. I mean, these aren't all isolated incidents. Uh, will law enforcement solve this case? Uh, you know, if they solve it, it'll, my feeling is that if they solve it, it'll be because they catch someone for something else, and someone trades information on this to get a lighter sentence on something else. So, my feeling is they won't get a. Um, I'm, I'm wrong all the time, but I, I really doubt that they're going to find find a straight line between the murder and an arrest. I think that someone will get pinched on something. Not want to go to jail and trade away information on this to get a lighter sentence or to go free and become a snitch. They're, they're all one thing. There are countless snitches out there, and um, you know all this bit about code of silence. It's um, you know it's only when they're sleeping, really. How how dangerous is that game? I mean, we've heard so much about the code of silence. What what happens when you break that? Uh, you know, the dangerous thing is when you. Um, Accuse someone of breaking it, then you're in, in danger. But there's all sorts of snitching. I mean, one of the um, uh, I, I, I know someone in law enforcement who's you know who's telling me that you wouldn't believe the people who snitch, and you'll snitch on your competition because if he gets pinched, then you can sell drugs in that area. Right. I um, mean, if you've ripped someone off in a drug deal, you don't want the guy going after you, so you snitch on him, get him pinched, and then um, then you walk free on ripping him off, and you start making more money. So you cheat someone on a drug deal, then then snitch on him, then he can't get you, and you're, you've ripped him off, and you're selling drugs in his area. Are we seeing a resurgence of mob activity in this area? I think what we're seeing is instability coming out of the Rizzuto thing. Like we had a um, we had a time when there was a, almost like a pyramid where there were people on the top, and they had real control. Now what we're seeing is um, a lot of micro players. We're seeing a lot of. Um, different groups with a fair amount of influence, but nobody with dominance. I don't think we're going to see the dominant days again, and so um, uh, we're seeing groups of 8, 10, 12, and they're groups of convenience a lot of times rather than groups with the um, same social background or same goals or 
same codes or same life views. We're just seeing people who, if you can get a good connection to Mexico and bring the drugs in, then you, you can become rich very quickly, but also you become a target very quickly. Why not the dominance of the days in the past? Why is that gone? Uh, there are 13 drug cartels in Mexico, and if you connect with any one of them, um, you can very quickly become rich. I mean, if you have a trucking company that comes out of Juarez, you can put the drugs in the tank, get a couple shipments up here. The driver might not even know they're in the tank, and then all of a sudden you're um, you're a big player and you're driving a Range Rover. And so you um, you can bypass the old system where you had to work your way up. Now there's... Um, Anyone who can make the connection down there and bring them in has a chance of big money. So, in other words, there's a lot more independent operators. Yeah, and it means that you don't really have the control from the top. Um, also, now um, a lot of the crime, a lot of the communications is done uh, with computers over phones, and so a lot of the old guys just aren't so good with this stuff, and the young guys are. Mm. One of the one of the people murdered in Toronto earlier this year was a computer technician, and that's no accident. Um, in the Biker wars, when they fight a lot of times, it's the people connected to the web pages who get shot first. Communications, it sounds odd, but it's, um, it's extremely important for these guys. And, the, um, you know, they, they think something's encrypted and it isn't, and then someone else is better. The um, uh, technology is a huge deal, and the younger people tend to be more confident on that than the, than the guys, um, the old efforts like me. What type of drugs are we talking about? Uh, cocaine's always the big one. Marijuana is kind of a wild card because um, with legalization, who knows where that where that's going? The criminals don't, and the government doesn't. Um, cocaine's always going to be big. Um, then you know synthetic drugs, but they're not quite the same because you can bring in all the chemicals and then mix them up somewhere, and so it's not illegal to bring in you know things that make up ecstasy separately, and then you just mix it together and you've got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about the legalization of marijuana. How does that change the landscape? I think it just confuses it. I don't think anyone really knows, and I think if I was a criminal, I wouldn't be totally happy with it. If I was a criminal, it would bother me that now there are too many independent operators out there. If I was a criminal, I'd be thinking, where can I sell it to in the States and not have these people in the way? So there's some opportunities, but it's not... Um, it's not like a slam dunk for them, because all sorts of people can also have it on their own. They don't have to go through the criminals all the time now. So I know there's a huge amount of interest in it, and some of them are pushing their way into it. But um, for pure control, I don't think they'll have it. On the other hand, they, these are guys who do have expertise in drugs. I mean, they do know they do know their way around a marijuana plant. So you know, they'll find some way of making a bit of money off it. So is there, the government claims that uh, this is the best way to keep it out of the hands of illegal organizations. Is that possible? I mean, the best way to stop a crime is to say it isn't a crime. So, you know, in a way, yeah. but I, I, don't, I think the illegal organizations will always find a way to make money. Um, the, with prescription drugs, um, when they cracked down here, there was a, for a while they were being sent from Sicily to Hamilton Mountain, where they just got doctors in Sicily to overprescribe um, or to set, make, um, make up things for bogus patients. Then they'd send it to Hamilton, and then they'd sell it around Ontario. So they, there's always a loophole. There's always something, and these guys are watching for what's vulnerable. Peter Edwards is with us from the Toronto Star. Website, Peter, we can go to to find out more about you and your books? Uh, there's one called PeterEdwardsAuthor.com. So it's all, all one word. 
All right, Peter Edwards, uh, expert in organized crime, author of many books, and, of course, uh, with the Toronto Star. Peter, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, no, thank you. Bye. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in Ross McLean, of course, uh, security specialist, uh, Ross McLean, security.com, crime power and politics. Uh, Ross, what are your thoughts on this? Well, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's certainly brought it to the, to the forefront for everybody to think about and take a look at what's going on. So much of the, you know, the mob, uh, the mob activity goes on below the radar. It doesn't get a lot of press. It doesn't get written about a lot because it's very difficult to track it. I mean, your previous guest on there, he's one of the ones who spends the time to look at the, the players and the programs and who's what and what's going on. So uh, it's certainly woken everybody up. And, the, you know, the big question for me is, is this just a, uh, a personal payback on the anniversary of the death of Pops? Or is this actually a signal that uh, this was strictly business and it's, there's some other stuff going on? How much attention does this dry, uh, draw to this community and how do they cope with that? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, the mobsters, you look at the mobsters' house when you do find out about them, like this house here, it's rather unassuming. And we just had a mobster uh, killed in Toronto not too long ago, to, you know, gunned down in his driveway, same sort of thing. His house wasn't very... Uh, very assuming sort of thing or whatever. We had another old-timer that was gunned down uh, in Toronto, uh, another mobster that was gunned down. It's almost like there's no retirement uh, plan for these guys. When they're getting in their old age, some of them are getting gunned down. But, you know, we're on to the next generation now. That's the question. Uh, Security cameras all around this house. You talked about the house. What do you think the chances are of finding out who did this? Well, it's there's no doubt it was obviously a planned hit. They would have done a surveillance on the home. They would have been aware of the cameras. You know, typically they could also bring someone else in from somewhere else to do the hit, then leave and be out of the country and gone before a time takes place on it. So the cameras may be of uh, little assistance. You know, what's actually interesting is, is, you know, mobsters should be a little bit more careful around their driveways and when they get home, because that's where the majority of these hits take place. They're either at their place of work or at their homes. And here he was just stepping out of his truck, apparently when he had uh, about eight shots put into him. So uh, that so so security cameras really are irrelevant in, at, at some, on something like this, are they or, or are they not? I mean, because well, no. we, we hear so much how they're used to help and solve other crimes. In, in a scenario like this where it's planned and it's a, it's a professional hit, are, are they of use? They're of use. They'll still be of use. They'll be able to see, you know, the person right-handed, left-handed, how tall were they, how much did they weigh, uh, potentially uh, skin color, uh, things like that. So it'll certainly help to identify some of the information. You know, sometimes the way the cameras can work, uh, if this person was, let's say, doing a surveillance of the house during the week before and he was a little bit lazy and some other camera up the street that the police may go to happen to see another vehicle come by when he maybe wasn't covering his face or his identity so much, you know, that sort of thing can help. So uh, no, if you're a detective, uh, you obviously want CCTV rather than not have it if you had your choice. Uh, other dominoes to fall here? Well, that's what we'll find out, what the, uh, what the cause of this, or the, the motivation behind this was. I mean, today in Toronto, we're just finishing up uh, a trial for four guys on trial for shooting down another uh, mafia-affiliated guy, and that, that was over a shipment of cocaine that they wanted to steal that apparently they knew that he was bringing in. So was this over business? Uh, what was the purpose of this? We're going to we'll have to wait to find out. I'm sure the police are, have some ideas on the intelligence side, but they probably won't be sharing that with us. I remember a few years ago uh, having this conversation with experts, and they said, well, yeah, the mob had kind of died down. There, there didn't seem, it seemed to be quite fragmented. Is there a resurgence here? 
Well, you know, it's just like the movie, uh, you know, the, the Godfather movies. Uh, the mob, organized crime, bikers, they have always found a way to move upstream. You yeah. know, in the case of the bikers, the ones you see running around wearing, you know, the flashes and the colors and the noisy bikes, uh, they're more the mascots for them. They have guys who work on Bay Street lawyers and everybody else who invest their money and do things for them who are tied to them that you would never put together as to being with uh, with the mob and with the bikers and stuff like that. So the same thing takes place within uh, within organized crime. They move upscale. They buy into businesses, areas. They blow things up. They still do their extortions. They manipulate markets uh, and those sort of things. Uh, how do you think the mob is viewing the legalization of marijuana in Canada? What does that mean moving forward? Yeah, I, I caught your tail end of your, of your question on that. And I'm going to tell you something that... The biggest customers for Canadian marijuana is the U.S. It's not Canadians. We are a bigger exporter of marijuana to the United States than Mexico is. And what happens is our pot is used by organized crime to go down to the States to get traded for heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, for all the stuff that we don't have here. So our our, our marijuana is actually used... Uh, for barter and trade for other drugs that aren't natural to Canada. So organized crime isn't going to care very much. They're still going to be making their trades down to the U.S., where for the most part, uh, pot's still illegal. So legalization doesn't affect that transaction at all, does it? No. In fact, I got a feeling it's probably going to be bringing us uh, uh, more flack with the U.S. as time goes by. The more we legalize it, uh, the more Canadians seem to think there's not much to it. If the U.S. decides there's something to it and they don't like that you had it and you, you know, you're not getting into the U.S., I think it's going to cause more problems. could cause more problems at the border, too. We'll have to see. Will legalizing it uh, and having it mass-produced the way it is in places like, you know, Tweed and what have you, uh, is um, does that mean there'll be less people growing it uh, underground? I don't think so. I don't think so. In fact, the law apparently legalizes you, allow, allows you to grow a few plants on your own, apparently, mm-hmm. uh, for doing it. So that'll go on. And plus, we still have the issue with, and I'm hearing about this, you know, about the pot that's being made, uh, you know, the, certainly the street pot, will get laced with other drugs. So you'll get a better high than you will off of the, quotes legal stuff. Right. For how they put the legal stuff together. And I have to tell you, that I mean, the scourge of drugs, and particularly this fentanyl and these opioids that are going on right now, Scott, is really something that I think we better get our hands on. The guy I know, his daughter just died, you know, last week over that. She was addicted to it, couldn't get off of it, and died from it. I mean, it's a real crisis that's going on. I think we have to increase the penalties on that. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist. Uh, RossMcLeanSecurity.com. The Facebook page is Crime Power and Politics. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, we've had lots of chats on this show with experts uh, far and wide in regard to terrorism. Um, and, And for the longest time, the discussion was terrorists coming in from other places. Uh, then all of a sudden we realized that domestic terrorism is a huge part of this and a lot of people are being radicalized at home or a lot of citizens are going elsewhere from home to be radicalized. The Ontario government seeks advice on reducing youth radicalization. To talk more about all of this, Alex Wilner is with his Associate Professor, International Relations, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, and is with us now. Hello, Alex. How are you today? 
Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Your thoughts on the Ontario government looking to looking for ways to help with youth radicalization? Let's start with that. Well, I think the. I mean, this is is one um, process. Uh, it's one strategy of a much larger series of strategies, uh, not only in Ontario but in Canada more broadly and across the globe to address the threat, the issue of radicalization. Um, this specific program that you're talking about, which was uh, issued, I guess, today uh, and will be ongoing for the couple, presumably several months, um, looks at youth. But there's other programming at the federal level across different departments um, and across all provinces to look at radicalization more broadly, not just among youth, but among young adults and so on. Good so, use good use of resources or politics? Uh, I'm sorry, could you, could you say that again? Good use of resources or politics? It's uh, a great, great question. I mean, clearly there's an issue, right? We know, and you've mentioned this before, and we've spoken about this, there are Canadians who have adhered to radical sentiments, uh, both from the Islamist jihadi worldview, but also from the far right, um, and far left, and we know that globally there are trends, very negative trends of uh, radicalization leading to violence in Canada, in Europe, in the United States, and you name it. So, so, so some of this is clearly uh, a reaction to those global trends. What are our governments going to do about it? This is what they've projected, and they're clearly this is a call for assistance, right? They're saying we want this is a call, a request for proposals from academics and experts to help us. Um, in this specific use case, to develop a programming that we need, who can who can assist with that? Well, I mean, there are a number of think tanks, there are a number of NGO platforms, and academics like myself and across Canada who do the academic side of, of research side mm-hmm. of this question. I mean, I, I presumably you're going to get quite a few uh, requests. They're taking two apparently, maybe two or three. Um, so, so there's a, quite a subset, and there, a lot of these are community members, they're N- uh, NGOs, they're, there's a couple famous ones in Montreal, for instance, that work with youth and Muslim community members and so on. So this is you know, part of a larger trend. If we just take a step back, I think clearly this is part of the larger trend. Uh, you said one of the cogs in this wheel, uh, those are my words. W- what are some of the other things we have to be uh, equally as uh, open to as far as suggestions? Well, so, I, I mean, this... What's really interesting about this one is it's tailored specifically to youth, right? So it's the Ministry of Children and Youth Services of the government of Ontario that's come out with this uh, new program. So clearly what this they're targeting well downstream of this issue. Um, they want to presumably target school-age children. They, uh, they want a program to target school-age children to understand the process of radicalization at a very young age. We have similar programs being explored at the university level, and then, of course, uh, on in, in tor- towards adulthood. So, you know, if it, it's, it's one piece of the of the puzzle, if you will. Um, there are other programs like this in the UK, for instance, um, where school teachers are kind of on the front line of identifying and intervening in potential cases of radicalization. I think in that case, it's quite controversial. You can imagine in that case, teachers. Uh, provide the names and the context of potential radical use to government services who then intervene on behalf of public safety. How, how, how do we get to solutions when, as you just mentioned, something like that is extremely sensitive? Are, are, do we really, are, we li- are we really giving these people the tools to actually come up with a solution? 
I think there's no easy answer. There's no easy set yeah. of tools, and there's no easy set of understanding what policy dynamics are going to work and what practical dynamics are going to work um, in the field. So, you know, this is kind of a call for help, it looks like. We know we have a problem. We know it's downstream in our youth. We want to understand this, and we want to understand the policy ramifications, and we want to move forward with programming. That's the kind of process, if you will, the cycle of how this usually works. And I, I should note, you know, public safety from Budget 2016 was, a lot, was, was given quite a bit of money from the government of Canada, the Liberal government of Canada, to develop from scratch an office, uh, you know, something called like an office for community outreach and countering violent uh, radicalization or radicalization leading to violence, something like that. And, you know, the whole point of this office is to provide top-down um, advice, best practices, those kind of things from the federal government all the way down into society and across laterally into the provinces. So, again, the big picture here is that a lot of government machinery and money and budget is moving into this area. There's clearly a feeling that there's a problem, but there's not a lot of solutions yet. We're still in the early phases. Uh, would this require programs that target everyone, start in school, much like a young sex ed curriculum sort of thing, or and, and sort of lays the groundwork for everyone, or is this best to target high-risk individuals? I think there's probably a bit of both going on. Um, again, I'm not terribly cognizant of what's the pros and cons. I mean, there's ethical questions, right? There's some theoretical questions. You're dealing with youth who are impressionable. Uh, so there's all kinds of questions in terms of you know cognitive science, etc. Uh, but presumably, some of it will be broad-based education, like the sexual sexual education uh, platform. That might be one solution to just you know, talk about issues of inclusion, radicalization, and violence at a younger age. I don't think we do that. That's certainly not how I was taught in school. Uh, and then, following the UK model, there might be a way to uh, identify, using um, the school system, youths at risk for whatever purposes. There'd be, a, you know, a checklist and training, presumably. And then, of course, it wouldn't be that the teacher or the principal or the school interacts or intervenes, but that they then provide the names to the social workers that then intervene on behalf of public safety. That's the British model. This is going to be a very, very difficult endeavor, is it not? I mean, really, it's a very slippery slope. It is a very slippery slope. Presumably, uh, public safety and other departments uh, in the provinces as well are looking at the lessons learned from from the UK, France, um, and, and elsewhere where these programs exist. You know, in a way, and I've said this for decades, for years anyways, Canada is is somewhat lucky in the sense that we're, uh, uh, you know, catching up to these issues, uh, partly because we've we've been safe up until the last couple of years. The UK has been dealing with radicalization uh, f- for a decade and a half, two decades or more, and they've been dealing with terrorism, you know, for even much longer than that. So we there are real lessons for policy and implementation that we can derive from the experience of our allies. So you know, part of this as an academic part. My, one of my solutions would be to simply say, well, let's see what's worked overseas mm-hmm. in our close democratic allies and, and what makes sense, both ethically, financially, etc., and apply the best lessons. I mean, we're catching up, but we're in a good place to do so. Obviously, this is a bigger problem than most think if, it's dire- if governments are directing uh, resources to this. Yes. I mean, clearly, again, I, the numbers fluctuate, but let's say there are 200 radicals, Canadian radicals, who have sought to fight or join various militant groups overseas. That's kind of the ballpark figure. It's probably a little bit higher than that. You know, that's it's not a huge number. 
Uh, there are thousands of Europeans who have done so. So on the global scale of things, something's afoot, if you will. We know that groups like al-Qaeda uh, and ISIS, or whatever's left of ISIS, actively seek Westerners to join their ranks and to provide and promote violence uh, at home here in Canada included. So we know there's a, there's a public security concern. We just don't know where the solution is. Some of the literature, from academic literature, clearly illustrates that young adults, as young as, as 18, 16, teenagers, and youths are susceptible to some of this propaganda and, and hate literature that, that they acquire online. So the question is, well, what do we do about that? We can't just sit on our thumbs, right, Scott? We've got to do something. Mm-hmm. So the government's saying, well, we're going to put this proposal out to acquire expertise, um, and then we'll put bucks and money where we need to uh, and with hopes that it'll it'll curb the problem, and this is happening again in Ontario and in the federal uh, federal public service, um, and across I presumably across other uh, provinces. So why is this happening? Why are youth turning to this movement? The radicalization issue, yeah, more broadly, I, I think it's a mix of um, sentiments that that are easily acquired and propagated online. So, you know, Al-Qaeda's radicalization processes, uh, compared to what ISIS has been able to do with Twitter and Instagram and other online social media processes, is amazing. So, so ISIS really is the newest iteration of kind of online, online propagandizer of mm-hmm. its hatred. And, you know, we know that youths and young adults spend a lot of time online. And there's not a great solution to hammering and, and taking away some of that propaganda. Twitter has tried to shut down thousands of ISIS uh, Twitter, Twitter handles, but then, of course, ISIS just reopens new ones under new names. Um, and, and so there's, there's a huge amount of data that's available online. So part of this is not only shutting it down, but also maybe countering those messages of hate. So governments do this. They promote you know, more inclusive propaganda, if you will, online to counter and outweigh the hatred, that is uh, very difficult to do as well, as long as it, you know, some youth are very susceptible to online propaganda, but they're all, they also sniff out the state-sponsored propaganda by, like, the U.S. State Department, for instance. So, you know, there's no legitimacy sometimes to the counter-messages that governments propose online. So it's a really tricky business. So, the, the, you know, it's a, it's a great very messy problem that we have. And again, this is just one area of solution. Is it about stopping radicalization or giving youth an opportunity so they don't fall into that trap? That's a great question. I think it's probably a bit of both. Stopping radicalization is difficult. It's a, you know, radicalization itself is a cognitive process, you know, emotional process, uh, change of behavior, etc. It's very difficult to understand. It's very difficult to intervene. I think we can intervene with sociologists and psychologists even, and social workers and religious practice, uh, practitioners. Um, but so, so some of it is re- literally just stopping the radicalization process and hopefully de-radicalizing radicals. But the other, much larger uh, subset, is preventing the violent extremism from taking root. And that is basically inoculating society um, and subsets of society against those messages of hate. So maybe one of the solutions from this specific um, uh, Ontario initiative is to build, uh, you know, a sustainable campaign at the youth level where those messages of hate are ridiculed. 
where where Canadian youth mm. read it and it just doesn't tickle them. They you, say, you know what, this is bullshit. You know use that you, word. I'll yeah, no, you know, you bring up a valid point, Alex, in the sense that you you talked about this group being on one uh, ISIS on one hand so advanced, to, so technological, and yet when it comes to their ideology, so primitive. So how do people who are so well versed in technology fall for this hell? Again, I have no easy answer for you. I think part of it is um, some individuals in the West, for whatever reason, have perceived a legitimate grievance that ISIS is tapping into. But are they stupid enough to honestly think that, um, and maybe that's a disrespectful word, but are are, are are, are they brainwashed enough to convince themselves that this is a better life, that this is a better world, that this is all real? Yes, they are. And I wouldn't say it's just brainwashing. Some of them, you know, brainwashing has this negative connotation of yeah. being duped. Some of them are, 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 some individuals that have gone on to support ISIS from the West are actively, they actively like what they're doing. Um, you know, they, they How do you need, explain that? I think they feel that they're buying into something larger that ISIS represents. And ISIS speaks to their grievances that they feel at home being, you know, lack of integration or lack of economic opportunities or lack of promotion at work or lack of uh, opportunities in, edu- in the education system. And ISIS says, you know, that's not your fault. It's actually the much larger forces at, at work here. And so if you come and join us, we'll, we will build the utopian society based on Islamic tenets and so on that you deserve. And so some people from the West uh, latch onto that. I I don't. Obviously, you don't. Yeah. It's hard for hard for. It just ama- It just amazes me how they see this as utopian. Yeah, they, I think that's you know ISIS says here's a code book, here's a rule of books for governing everything from how you make money, how you're taxed, how you marry, who you marry, how you buy slaves, right? How you rape women. I mean, it, they have a codified yeah. system for of governance, and so maybe part of it is you just if you buy into it, it's easy to follow potentially. It is brutal, it is racist, it is misogynistic. I mean, it's something out of the world. But maybe some people latch onto the feasibility of that government governance experience. Remember in the heydays of ISIS, going back a couple years now, before the war, they, they published a lot of propaganda of individuals happily shopping on, uh, on, in, uh, in marketplaces, mm. um, on, on you know, newlyweds taking bus tours among, uh, within the, the caliphate, you know, they were pr- presenting themselves, their social experiment, their government experiment, as something positive. And that reflected in their propaganda, and some people lapped it up. Alex Wilner has been with us, Associate Professor of International Relations, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Fascinating discussion, Alex. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.